If you have a Bible, please turn to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus 2. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. Um, Exodus 2, verse 11. We'll start there. I'll raise your hand. We'll get you a Bible. Um, I'm just going to jump right into this because there's a lot to cover today. A lot to cover. Verse 11. I'm going to read down to chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, I'm not going to reread this text as I teach. So play, pay close attention to, if you could, to the narrative flow an arc of this part of Exodus. Um, if you uh, remember last week, we ended where Moses was born and all of the crazy things that happened around his birth. And now he's a little grown up. He just grew up in like one verse. Uh, verse 10 to 11, just grew up. So there you go. Verse 11, one day after Moses had grown up, that's all you need to say. There it is. But here's where it gets good. He went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. By the way, if you don't know, Moses is a Hebrew that was saved and grown up in Pharaoh's household. So he's a prince in Pharaoh's palace. And one day he goes out and just walks the streets of Egypt and sees his, his native people, the Hebrews, being treated harshly. That's the point. He saw them, his own people, were and watched them at their hard labor, their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and he hit him in the sand. The next day he went out again and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you, going to, are you thinking of killing me like you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a, now a priest of Midian had, Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove these women away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to rule, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. Where is he? He asked. Why did you leave him out there? Invite him in to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zephora to Moses in marriage, and Zephora gave birth to a son. That was, again, that happened a lot. That happened quick. Right? He grew up quick and then just got married and had babies quick. And Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. And the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to a far side in the wilderness. And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames from a fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. 
Then the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, and God called him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a land, a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, all the, all the, all the ites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring out my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, uh, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought up the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And then they say to me, what's his name? What should I tell him? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, before us is this super epic narrative that I, I, I want your help in explaining and pulling out the subtle nuances and the application of how we can see uh, your world and how you rescue and how you save and who you are and all this stuff. And so we ask um, today together that we would learn how to see uh, the story of salvation and rescue in your way. And you would connect it to our world and where we work and where we live and how we're single and how we're married and how we have kids or how we don't have kids and all the stuff in between. Do all that, Lord, by your, in your strong name and for your kingdom. In Jesus' strong name, amen. I love how this story starts. Moses grows up and goes out for a walk. That's how it starts. That's how Moses' narrative starts. And that walk on that day changed his life forever. The way this narrative kind of reads is that Moses grows up and he goes out for a walk. And when he goes out, he never comes back the same. That walk that he goes on that day would take him far. Take him very, very far away. Even out of Egypt. Out of the palace of Egypt. Out of Egypt itself. All the way out to the wilderness. Only to come back again with a list of demands from Yahweh. But we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves. That's kind of how this starts though. This section of the narrative can be framed up by what Moses sees. So what he sees here in chapter 2 when he goes out for a walk on the harsh streets of Egypt. And what he sees in chapter 3 when he goes out for a walk in the dry wilderness of Horeb. So let's look at this narrative under what Moses sees on two of his walks. First, what Moses sees on a walk in Egypt. Verse 11 says that he went out to his own people. 
We don't know at this point in the narrative if Moses was aware of his own identity. If, we're, if, if he was aware uh, or if he was confused, it seems at this point in the narrative that Moses is very confused as to who he is. Is he a Hebrew? Is he an Egyptian? And what is his role in all of this and what does all of this mean? I mean, think about it. Moses was born from Hebrew parents and was secretly delivered from Pharaoh's wrath, but in a crazy twist of fate and providence, he grew up in Pharaoh's own household. Now, if that is the case, then was it safe for this boy to grow up conscious of his true heritage? Or was that heritage kept from him for his, from his, for his own safety? Meaning, did he grow up knowing he was a Hebrew or did he grow up not knowing he's a Hebrew just to keep him safe? Like, what was going on here? We're not really told. But we're told that as he grows up, he grows up a little bit, the first part of this narrative, he grows up a little bit confused. And we're told when he walked around Egypt, he didn't see, the th he didn't see Egypt the same way the Egyptians did. When he walked around Egypt, he didn't notice the beauty of Egypt. Notice what Moses sees when he goes on a walk around Egypt. Because what you see can be a great way you know what things God might, God might be moving you towards acting upon. Like how you walk in the world, the things that you notice, the things that you see, those things can start to be burnings within you of things that God might want to do through you. Moses goes out and he noticed, notice that he noticed forced labor. He noticed humans forcibly engaged in oppressive labor for the sake of an imperial government. He noticed his people in bondage. Others might have seen different things. Others might have wandered around Egypt and noticed royal splendor. They might have noticed the pyramids, the extravagant living, the gardens, the well-ordered well society, but Moses only saw forced labor. When he walked around, he could not even enjoy Egypt because of all he saw. And this right here is the making of an advocate. This is a making of a leader. This is a making of an intervener, someone who intervenes. When they walk around their own city and they don't see the city the same way as other people see it. I mean, what do you see when you walk around San Francisco? We live like in the disruption capital of the world. It's like you and I are trained, when you live in San Francisco long enough, you're trained to see problems that need to be solved or parts of society that need to be disrupted. And with everything that we think, we think this, when something's wrong, we think someone should do something about this. Um, one of the harsh realities that I'm, I'm finding is that water is really expensive in San Francisco. I've never paid for water. It usually came in my rent, but now I pay for water and I get my first water bill and I get it, I'm thinking, someone should do something about this. Someone should disrupt the water business. I don't know what that means, like rain or what. I don't know what that means. But I'm like, this is, in, and I'm, we're, we're just trained to think like this. Anything's wrong. Anything's broken. Like we have, to dis, we, ha, we have to fix this. Someone should do something about this. But what do you see? And I know we're trained to think that way. But what do you see when you're not trying to monetize something? What do you see when you're walking around San Francisco? You're not trying to start a business or get your idea out there. Think about that. Spend some time thinking about that as you walk around San Francisco. What if the things you see and stir you or maybe even get you angry are the very places where partnership with God begins? You should pay attention to those things. This is exactly what happened to Moses. It was a random day 
and he's out for a walk. But it was a day that all of the thoughts that he had inside, all the wrestling of who he was and who he wasn't came to a head. And when he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, he could not keep it inside anymore. This is a sight he's seen before. At this point in the narrative, he's somewhere around the age of 40 years old. He's for sure seen Egyptians beating Hebrews. But this was the breaking point. This was the day where he said to himself, not today. And what does he do? Moses gets involved. And the the text really doesn't translate it well. Look at verse 11, the second half of verse 11. Keep this verse on the screen for a couple seconds. It says, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that. He's like looking around to see if anyone can see him, right? He's like... He sees no one. He's like, okay, no one's around. He kills the Egyptian and he hid him in the sand. Okay, the word for beating and the word for killing in Hebrew is the same word, nakah, which means the Egyptian was doing to the Hebrew exactly what what, um, Moses did to the Egyptian. What the text is saying is that slavery... The forced labor, the beating, the treatment was killing this Hebrew, was nakaying this Hebrew. It was just taking a lot longer. See, this Egyptian was literally killing this Hebrew. He might not have been instantly killing him, but his, the bondage that this Hebrew was under, he was killing him. And so Moses, what Moses did, Moses did to the Egyptian what the Egyptian was doing to the slave. Moses was inverting the power relation. Moses, being a Hebrew himself, was doing to this Egyptian exactly what the Egyptian was doing to the slave. And Moses intervenes. So the question is, was it wrong? Did what Moses, what Moses did to this Egyptian, was it wrong? And this is where we're introduced early on into Moses' humanity. His flaws. See, Moses is not the hero of this story. He is a flawed human who deals with anger issues that God will have to deal with later on, that God will eventually have to judge him on later on. He is a budding advocate, and his intentions to rightly order the power structure in Egypt is good at the time. Even the next day, he goes out again and tries to break up a fight. So what we're told, we're taught in really quick, three quick successions is that Moses cares about the vulnerable. Moses sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. He sees two Hebrews fighting and he sees women that are being scooted away from a well by shepherds. And every single time he intervenes on, the, on behalf of the victim. And what we're seeing that Moses is this young advocate. He is full of fiery angst. He is full of like, this is wrong. Someone has to do something about it. He's full of that sort of angst that we all love when people move to San Francisco and have, right? Like that young angst that will do anything, like something has to be done about this. That was him. That was Moses. He breaks up a fight between two Hebrews who are fighting each other because they cannot strike out against their slave masters. So they work out their unresolved violence on each other. So Moses intervenes again. But this time Moses intervenes in a different way. He asserts a judicial function in the community. He identifies who's wrong. There are two Hebrews that are fighting, and to the one who's in the wrong, he says, why have you done this? This is a foreshadowing, by the way. Moses will eventually be the judge of Israel. 
So he inserts himself. He says, hey, this is wrong. Breaks up a fight. You're wrong. You shouldn't be doing this. And the guy, the guilty one, is not happy about this. And he starts rebuking Moses for his, presumpt- his presumptuousness. He says, he says who, are you? who made you judge? Who made you ruler? Who authorized you to do anything about this? Why don't you go back to your palace? Oh, and by the way, that, that killing that you did yesterday, the whole slave community knows about it. We all know. You can do that to me. You're going to kill me? Is that how this gets done here? And this is when Moses realizes he's, he's found out. And this is when he runs. And the text lets us know that Pharaoh has heard about the killing as well. Which would have been no big deal. Being the prince, a prince in Egypt would have allowed him to kill an Egyptian, no problem. If need be. But he cannot kill an Egyptian to protect a Hebrew. Because now everyone sees where Moses' loyalties lie. Oh, you're with them now. That's what that would have meant. Moses could have killed an Egyptian. That would not have been a thing. But the fact that he killed an Egyptian to protect a Hebrew. Oh, oh, we see where your loyalties are, are now. We see where, and so Pharaoh tries to kill him. And I don't really know how all the interplay was going on in the palace. Like if he went to his sister and said, this is why I said never raise this. Tr-. I don't know if he knew, if he didn't know. What, we, we, we're not told any of that. We're not told any of the tension inside the palace. All we're told is that Pharaoh now knows where his loyalties lie. And it says, now we must, now we have to kill Pharaoh. We have to kill um, Moses. So he runs. And Moses runs right into a third scene. This is brilliant storytelling, right? He runs and he runs right up to a well. Now, well, well, this is like the famous Torah well scenes in Genesis are great. Uh, well scenes are idyllic, they're serene. Well scenes in the, in the book of Genesis are even romantic. Uh, this is where um, Abraham's servant met Rebecca. This is where Jacob met Rachel, right? And there's women at the well. This is like supposed to be romantic. Moses is like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. This turned out well. This is good. <laughs> then the scene is interrupted by shepherds. These are not good shepherds, by the way, right? Good shepherds lead their flock by living water. These aren't good shepherds. They just find a well and they, they beat up some girls to get the water. These are not good shepherds. So these good shepherds, these she- not good shepherds, bad shepherds, roll up. Women are trying to water their flocks. These, these men just push them away. And Moses, the advocate, it's like, no, 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 no. This is not happening. So Moses goes to their rescue. The word in Hebrew is yasa. Literally, Moses saves the women. He like pushes the shepherds out of the ways and lets the, the women water their flock. This, all this is, is doing, these like three scenes here are that Moses has this like budding advocacy, rescue sort of thing. Like he wants to do something. So he uses his power. He uses physical power as a, as, as a, as a man. He uses political power as a, uh, a prince in Egypt. He uses all of it. And all of it kind of backfires except for this one. When the women go back home, they tell their dad what happened. And the dad says, well, go get them. Let's, let's get them some food or something. And when Moses is introduced to dad, he's introduced as an Egyptian. Like the, an Egyptian saved us. And Moses didn't correct him. He's like, oh, pardon me. I'm a Hebrew. He did, no, he, they're not corrected. And the flow of the narrative, this is unexpected. When you're reading this, this, this kind of hits you. It's supposed to hit you unexpectedly because the episode right before this, Moses has clearly identified himself as a Hebrew. 
He's clearly killed an Egyptian to save a Hebrew. He's clearly tried to break up two Hebrews fighting and judge over them to like, to like silence all of the, 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 the angst and the violence that's in the slave community. He's trying to do that. And so now he's introduced as a, an Egyptian. This is interesting because Moses is right here at this point in the narrative on a threshold moment where he's about to completely walk away from his old identity as an Egyptian and step into his new identity. This is like the last time he's identified as an Egyptian. Now let's step back at this point and notice a few things about this part of the narrative. First thing I want you to notice is that violence and brutality are an inescapable reality in an unjust society. Violence and brutality are an inescapable reality in an unjust society. When you see violence all over our world, you should still, like, there should be something that, where it hits you that this is not the way it's supposed to be, and that is good. And you should also know that this is uh, the, the reality of an unjust society. An unjust society is a violent society. And this, this is what it paints. This is the beginning of Exodus paints all of this violence. There's an Egyptian beating the Hebrew over forced labor practices. There's a Hebrew and another Hebrew fighting and beating themselves up. There's a shepherd who is exerting his strength over women and pushing them aside over water, which is scarce. And who knows what could have happened if, if it escalated. This overriding ethos of violence does not allow us to romanticize rescue or salvation in the Bible. When we think of rescue in the Bible, we think of salvation in the Bible, we always think of it like, oh, God saved me. And it's like our little hearts are warmed and we feel good about it. And we sing some really cool songs and we move on with our lives. But when God rescues and he saves in the Bible, rescue and salvation consist of an intrusion into cycles of violence taken at great risk. Like, God makes his people insert themselves into, at great risk themselves into cycles of violence to stop it in order to, to permit a new pattern of social relations. That God has to like stop this violence. Moses has to get involved, like physically get in between two people. He has to physically wrestle shepherds off of the well. Like, no, you get out of here. These women need to water their, their, their flock. Like, you can't romanticize this like, oh, and then Moses was like out for a walk and he saw violence and he like killed a guy <laughs> and then he ran. Like that, this was violent. And this, this is not to say the violence is right. What this is to say is that salvation in the Bible um, is messy. God has to insert himself into our cycles of violence to save us from violence. The second thing that we see, by the way, this, this connection and parallel to the cross of Christ, the most, probably the most violent act that there could be in the Bible, that the Bible doesn't even, can't even talk about it that, off, that much because it's so violent, just says, and he was crucified, because it's violent. Second, this narrative shows the inner workings of both Moses and his development as a young leader with angst. I think this, this should, this is where I, I think this, uh, studying the life of Moses is a good parallel for a lot of you who are young and angsty in San Francisco, <laughs> which are all of you. <laughs> Moses had a very traumatic upbringing. Uh, he was born into an environment where his peers were literally being drowned in the Nile River. He was abandoned by his mother and for the best reasons possible. 
He was then reunited with his birth family, only to be returned to his adoptive family later on. Then he was raised in a pagan environment fundamentally different from the environment in which he had spent the early, early years of his life with his parents. He lived between two worlds. So he grew up not really knowing who he was. He grew up with a confused identity. He grew up with misguided passion. He didn't even know where it was coming from. I would imagine there were times when Moses says, I don't know what I'm feeling right now. I don't know why this is so wrong. And it's just, he doesn't even know how to justify it in his, own, in his own mind, his own heart. And he keeps all of this pain hidden. He stuffs it all down. He probably has his own way of coping with all this turmoil inside. But eventually, and we all know this to be true, this happens to every single one of us. When we stuff down our pain and our disintegration, it finds a way to come out for everyone to see. And Moses, on this walk, couldn't hide it anymore. He was a Hebrew, and he was angry about it. Angry about not being with his own people. Angry about the way that they had been treated. Angry about the way that they treated each other. Angry about his own upbringing. Probably angry at his parents at a certain point in his life. But his anger was not fruitful. His pain that he, that he continued to stuff down was wreaking havoc on all his attempts to accomplish something good. He wanted to do something good with his life. He wanted to do something about the Hebrews' predicament. He wanted to, but all of his unresolved anger was just making everything worse. So he had to go to the wilderness to face his dark side. He had to leave. He had to f find himself. I don't know. And there in the wilderness, Moses was forced to let go. Let go of all his plans of making the world right. Let go of his plans to save the Hebrews. Let go of his way of doing everything. And I'm so glad that Moses didn't have Twitter or Snapchat or an ability to make a podcast when he was in Midian. I'm so glad. Aren't you glad? I'm so glad. Because what he needed was the work that only solitude could bring. Obscurity could bring. Alone with himself. He had to go into obscurity. He went from the palace, from a place of power, a place of prestige, where he had it all, to having nothing. He was a shepherd. Into obscurity he went. Obscurity is a place where God is at work in you, and it doesn't feel like God is at work in you. It's when God is doing something, you're like, no one knows who I am. I'm not doing anything of any significance. My life doesn't really matter. Who am I? That's obscurity. And that's where God's doing most of his work. It's where your life is lived in preparation for God, what God will do next. And you never know how long this process will take. The invitation during obscurity is to rewire the deeply patterned responses that might have been helpful at one time in your life but could cripple you now in what God is calling you to do. So Moses, at one time of his life, sees the Hebrews being oppressed and he acts out in violence. And God's like, that won't do. I need you to lead hundreds of thousands of slaves out of Egypt and they're going to complain most of the time when you're doing it. <laughs> violence will not do. So here's what we're going to do. You're going to go into the wilderness for 40 years and you're going to chill. 
Ruth Haley Barton writes on her, in her great book uh, on leadership intersecting with Moses' life. She says, Moses remained in a solitary, non-public existence for a long time. It was as if in some deep and fundamental way, he, he just let go. He let go of his dreams of fixing anything, helping anyone or even living among his people. Instead, he received what was given. He was offered a home in Midian, and so he settled there. He was given a wife, and so he took her as his own. He fathered a son, and it became the touchstone in his life, an opportunity to name something about himself with more courage and realism than ever before. When his son was born, he named him Gershom because, quote, I have been an alien residing in a foreign land. See, what he named his son is telling. It was as if when he named his son, he was finally able to admit that he had struggled with his identity and he was mad as hell about it. Like he had struggled with his identity for so long. I am a foreigner. I've always been a foreigner. When I was uh, born and set down the Nile, I was a foreigner. And then when I was in Pharaoh's house, I was a foreigner. But then when I went back to my mom, I was a foreigner because I actually lived in Pharaoh's house. But then I went back to Pharaoh's house, I was a foreigner because I was actually Hebrew. And now I'm a foreigner literally living in a foreign land. I'm not even, I'm not even from here. And so he names his son. I've, 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 I've always been a foreigner. And this is where as soon as he names, as soon as Moses names who he is, as soon as he confesses, I'm just a foreigner. This is where the narrative changes. And then we get back to what God is about to do in Israel. Because finally Moses is at a place where God can use him. And legend has it, it took 40 more years. Chapter 3. Moses' second walk. Moses went on a walk in Midian. It says in verse 2, that an angel appeared in flames of fire within a bush. Moses goes out for a walk in the deserts, uh, in the wilderness of Midian. And he sees this strange thing, a bush that was not on fire, or that was on fire but was not being consumed. And we're told that an angel of the Lord was the one doing this. And it's odd, an angel appears and, and, and the angel says nothing and he carries no message. Angels carry messages, that's what they do, they're angels. This angel's job was only to get Moses' attention. That's such a funny part of the story. It's like an assistant that calls and says, hold for the president. Like this angel like stirs up the fire and Moses goes, fire. Angel's like, God, I got him. Like he's, he's coming. And then the angel disappears and now, now God shows up and starts talking. It's a great story. Okay. And then Moses saw that the bush was on fire and did not burn up, verse, verse 3. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight why the bush does not burn up. Even his tone is different. Listen to Moses' tone. He's just walking, he's like, whoa. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna go over and see the strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. Like he's mellowed. Moses is mellow. He walks slower. He notices, he ponders. He doesn't just react, he assesses. He's like, whoa, whoa, that's strange. So he like walks over there. He says, I will go over and I will see. Rollheiser, my guy, Ryan Rollheiser. Gosh, I quote him all the time. He says this, the human soul is like a fine wine that needs to ferment in various barrels as it ages and mellows. The wisdom for this is written everywhere in nature and scripture and spiritual traditions and in what is best in human science. 
And that wisdom is generally learned in the crucible of struggle. Growing up and maturing is precisely a process of fermentation. It does not happen easily without effort and without breakdown, but it happens almost despite us because such is the effect of a conspiracy between God and nature to mellow the soul. How does it happen? What are the various barrels within which we find ourselves fermenting? How is the soul mellowed within the crucible of struggle? We mature by meeting life, just as God and nature designed it, and accepting there the invitations that beckon us ever deeper into the heart of life itself. But that is a simple cliche, more easily said than done, because as we go through the seasons of our lives, the challenges we meet there can just as easily embitter and harden the soul as mellow it. We don't meet a bitter Moses. Moses has mellowed. The things that happened in Moses' life could have easily, just as easily made him bitter and harden his soul. You're not the only person who's ever grown up in a, in a, in a, in a way where you're com completely confused, in a way that you've been abandoned or abused. You're not the first person. The things that happen in our life are invitations, and they're invitations to either mellow us in life, to grow us into great sympathy, to grow us into advocates, to grow us into people who God can use, or it can harden us. It can make us bitter towards everyone and everything and angry at God the most. We don't meet a bitter Moses. We meet a mellow Moses. And many of us are choosing to live lives even now that don't set us up to pay attention like Moses did here. To notice those places where God is at work or places where we might experience a burning work of God and ask ourselves what these things mean for us. But don't be too hard on yourself. It took Moses 40 years to mellow. 40 years to be ready to pay attention to this bush. God knows when Moses is ready. And after a long period of obscurity, he finally is. And so God calls him from within the bush. By the way, this is God's first appearance in the narrative. If you've ever watched the Avengers, everyone claps every time a new superhero appears. Finally, God appears. Everybody's like, oh, there's God. There he is. Like literally, he has not appeared this whole narrative. And finally, God appears. This is his appearance. He's in a bush that's not burned, right? Or not consumed. Just strange. He's Moses. Moses. And Moses responds, here I am. What an amazing response. Here I am. These are the words of someone who is ready to submit and ready to obey. Here I am. The mellowing is complete. So God says, take off your shoes. For the place where you're standing is holy ground. There is, um, there is limit caused by the reality of God's holiness. Something must come off. Something must be stripped bare. Something must be removed. The presence of God transforms everything. This, by the way, this ground is just, there's nothing holy about this ground. It's dirt. It's wilderness. What makes it holy is that God is there. It, Moses would look down like, it just looks like dirt to me. Like, this is dirt and that's dirt. What's difference in dirt? I'm here. Take your shoes off. And so Moses takes his sandals off. I mean, this place is a, this is a junior high auditorium. And when God's here, it becomes a sanctuary. God's presence transforms the thing. And it can take you, it can, take where you work. You can work in a place where under the energy efficient glow of LED lights and free sight glass coffee, that's what it feels like. 
but also become a hotspot of God's holy presence. God's holiness requires something, though. It requires respect and honor and humility and awareness. And so God's like, okay, listen, listen, take off your shoes. I don't know how arbitrary that is. Take off your shoes. I think God's like, you're stepping into my space here. Change something. I don't know if that's like arbitrary or not. You kind of just don't, you don't really see that as, as the narrative moves on. But God's saying, you are about to approach me, change. Like, I need you to like, like have this change in mindset. You are about to approach me. I'm God. And so Moses takes off his shoes. But because God's holy doesn't mean that God's distant because God was face to face with Moses. God was so close to Moses that Moses got uncomfortable. It says that Moses had to cover his, he had to hide his face. Have you ever been in a situation where someone gets so close to your face that you're like. <laughs> it's not because you like you smell their breath, but it's just because like. It's because, like, it's, uh, you're so close to me, it's, be, it, it's just, just uncomfortable now. And I, I feel like I have to, I have to like, do that. And it was, this wasn't shame. This was so close that he was like, I, you're, you're, so, you're so holy. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know if I can do this. See, God is holy and personal. And this quick introduction, we see that God calls Moses, that God warns Moses, and then God reveals his promises. God says, Moses... God says, take off your sandals. And God says, I am the God and the father of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's who I am. And in verse 7, he speaks more fully to who he is and why he's visiting Moses. Look at verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them. Everything that you need to know about God is right here. Here's what you need to know about God. This is self-disclosure. This is God's self-disclosure. If you are new to all of this, take note. This is who God is. He says, I have seen. I have heard. I am concerned. And I have come down. This is how God reveals who he is. I have seen the misery of my people. I have heard them. I am concerned about them. And I have come down to do something about it. This is the gospel in miniature. It says it all. This is the whole mission of Jesus. It can be described right here. The whole rescue mission of God was told to Moses at that burning bush that was on fire but wasn't consumed. So why has he come down? Why has God come down? And the answer is to rescue, to deliver, to bring up. The word there is snatch, to snatch away. The same word that, of what Moses did to the women at the well. He saved them. I am here to come and snatch away my people who are in bondage. And this is all very, very cool. You can imagine Moses listening to all of this thinking, you're, you're going to do all that? Wow. I, I tried that before. Didn't go so well. I'm really interested to see you do it. Question, how are you going to do that? Look at verse 10. God's saying, so now, go. I am sending you. Time out. Time out. Like just the buildup is so good, right? God's like, I'm, I have seen and I have heard and I'm concerned and I've come down to do something. Like, well, what are you going to do? You go. <laughs> I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa, whoa, wait. You just said you wanted to do all this thing. Like it's supposed to be arresting. You're supposed to read this with Moses and go, well, it kind of sounds like God put Moses more on the hook than him. Like it, it, it sounds like God was like, I'm going to do something about this. Moses, why don't you go do something about this? 
in one moment, in one breath, the grand intention of God has become a specific human responsibility, a human obligation and a human vocation. It is Moses who will do what Yahweh said and Moses who will run the risk that Yahweh seems ready to take. And just like that, after this massive intrusion of God, the Exodus has suddenly become a human enterprise. God will use Moses to meet with Pharaoh, not himself. And God will use Moses to bring out his people, not himself. It's the thing where you become the answer to your own prayers. Have you been there? When you pray, you're walking around San Francisco and you pray, someone should do something about that. And God says, okay, I'm here to do something about that. And you say, great. And he says, therefore, go and do something about that. It's that thing. See, we would, we would love to pray, God, do something about that. And what we think happens is that God's like, okay, when you're sleeping at night, I'm going to go and do something about that. <laughs> and you're going to wake up the next morning, and then you're going to read the paper, and something's going to be done about that. That's not how it works. That is not how it works. When you are stirred to do something about that, God's like, yeah, I am going to do something about that. Therefore, Go. Go. Go and do something about that. And this is how Moses responds. Well, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? I wonder how serious he was. Well, who am I? No, really, who am I? Like, I've been confused for a very long time. I don't really know. I tried to intervene and it didn't work. The Hebrews don't see me as their own. I'm hunted by the, I'm hunted by the Egyptians. I don't know how I'll fit into all this. Who am I? Who am I to go? I don't understand this. And how did Moses respond to, Mo, to how did God respond to Moses' who am I? Mo, God did not build Moses' confidence in himself. This is our culture. We like live in a hype culture. We live in a culture of empowerment where when we take classes, whether they're on a stationary bike or in a yoga studio or in a conference center, we are coaching. People are always be telling you, you're a boss. You were made for this. This is your moment. Nothing can stop you. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Use it as fuel, like that sort of stuff. <laughs> Everywhere you go, everything you do, that's just what everyone's telling you. But God does none of this. He could have. He could have said, Moses, you were born for such a time as this. Moses, this is your moment. You're a boss. You're a prince. But I'll make you a king. Let's do this. <laughs> he could say all that. He doesn't say any of that. Who am I? And God says, this is how God responded. I will be with you. Oh my gosh, that is so good. He doesn't even answer the question. Who are you? I don't, it doesn't really matter who you are. I will be with you. That's what matters. God is saying your identity and your ability is directly tied to my presence. Me being with you, that, that's everything. That's everything you need to know. I will be with you. So Moses' question next is natural. He's like, okay, well then who are you? <laughs> That's a great question. I will be with you. Okay, who are you? What is your name? And God said, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This is the name of God, I am. Tell them I am. Now, what does that mean? Now, here, here, let me try to use some like Hebrew and English transliteration so you get the point here, okay? Moses says, who am I? And God says, aye, I, I, I will be with you. Aye, with you. 
I will be with you. God says, who are you? Or Moses says, who are you? And he says, aye, who, aye. You get it? Who, who am I? God says, I will be with you. Like, who are you? I will be who I will be. Not helpful at all. <laughs> this is not helpful. And it's supposed to, it's not supposed to be helpful. Like you're, you're like, okay, you're not, you're not answering any of the questions that I'm asking. And that's the, that's the point. That right there is the point. God's saying, this is what you need to know about me and this is what you need to know about you. You are the one who I'm with. I am the one who will be with you. That's all you need to know. I am who I am. I am the one who will be with you. I will lead my people out. That's all you need to know. And that is enough. I will deliver them and I will deliver you. And that's all you need to know about me. Here's the thing. This is my program. You are entering into the way I do things. I think that's what the sandals were all about. Rearrange your life. You're moving into my program. You're moving into my salvation project. You try to do it your way. It doesn't really work that way. I'm going to do it my way. The point is we'll be doing things his way. The point is, you're going to do things my way, not your way. And it's supposed to be opaque. It's supposed to be mysterious. We don't fully understand who we're working with, but he understands us. He sees us, he hears us, and he acts. When God called me to plant this church, I, I, I kind of felt like this in a small way. Um, I was Oh, I was just, I just turned 30, I think. And God said, you're, I moved to San Francisco to plant a church. First thing I said, not joking. I, I didn't have this in my head. It just what kind of, I'm like, who am I to go to that city? Like, I'm, I, have, I have two years of an associate's degree at a community college. <laughs> didn't even graduate. Like, I'm not the educated guy. I'm not the startup. I'm like, I'm, I'm from Bakersfield. Like, I don't know if, who, who am I? I am, I should not go to that giant, influential, powerful city. There's no way. I, I mean, I was saying these things and I was actually kind of angry. I'm like, that's just so, it feels like you're setting me up for failure, God. It's not fair. And God never answered me by saying, well, you know who you are? You're a child of the king. You need to boss up right now. He didn't say that to me. He said, literally, he said to me, I am with you and I will be with you. Do not fear. He said, but well, we're going to do things my way. So throw away the church planting manual and call a prayer meeting. And I was like, do you, you mean a, uh, like a round of funding meeting? No, no. A prayer meeting. You mean an interest meeting? No, I mean a prayer meeting. I'm going to be with you, but you're going to do these things like the way I, I say to do them. It seems that when we're faced with God-sized dreams before us, we naturally ask the question, who am I? And God doesn't respond by telling us who we are. He responds by telling us who he is and that he will be with us, and that's enough. Because God will save in really weird ways. He will, God, Moses will have to march back into Egypt, and God will deliver his people through frogs <laughs> and flies and a meal eaten in haste where they sacrifice a lamb and paint blood on doorposts? That's so strange. <laughs> Moses is like, but I, I can kill people. Like, I've done that. I can, like, do, I can, 
God's like, no, flies, bro. We're using flies. And it's so strange. It's like, this is like God's strange program. Like, I will deliver my people in my way. Will you get on board? And this is the invitation before us. I know that in this town, we deal with a lot of this stuff. Who am I? Um, We see all these problems that swirl around us. We feel like we're just like little cogs and machines that like make people billions and billions of dollars. Um, And we just don't even like know our place. And sometimes we go to things and we listen to these motivational things that like, that, that like pump us up, but we know this doesn't last that long. There might be another invitation to know the God who's with us. And when God is with us, he will lead us in, in places and in things and in ways that um, in your ingenuity, you would never be able to do. And I think that's the invitation for our church as we look at all the things that are wrong in our city are wrong in our world and our nation, we can partner with God. But we have to do things his way. And that, I think that starts by knowing him. I think that starts by encountering him. I believe that starts by encountering him in a way that is humble. Like even now, as you move into a time of, of response, to humbly come before God, to humbly bring our request before him, to, hum, to, to move in ways that maybe you've not moved in a while towards the prayer team, towards the carpets, towards communion, where you're usually just there sitting and just taking it all in. But maybe there's, a, a, there's an invitation for you to humbly move toward God. Let's pray. And so, Lord, I, I, as we move now to a time of response, I ask God that you would give us um, your presence. I think that is like the best promise that we could ever, ever ever receive is your presence, the promise that you will be with us. I know that there are in this room so many different people in so many different stages of life. There are so many young Moseses in here full of angst and anger and rebellion at the way that they were raised or the way the world works or the way that our society is. And I I just... I say, Lord, make them into uh, mellow advocates, people that are able to step into places that maybe I or the person sitting next to them can never step into. Take their angst and through obscurity and the conspiracy of life, work in them a mellowing of their soul so that when they hear that voice calling them to go, They might wrestle with you over it, but they eventually they do go. I know there are other people here that are in this stage of mellowing, like they've lived through life and they're just a little bit more mellow. And they're still waiting to be called. They're like, okay, I've done my obscurity thing. Can I go now? Would you meet with them? Maybe today is the day you call them out, but maybe not. And in all of our experiences, would you hold us, Lord? Would you be with us? Would you be present? May we be able to bring our, our, our cries to you because we're told that you see, that you hear, that you are concerned and that you will come down. And you have come down. Be present now as we respond to you. In Jesus' name.